ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. It's not just cattle producers waiting for Indonesia to release import permits for 2024. Those in the business of sending table grapes to Indonesia are also in limbo. Fruit that might otherwise have been sent to Indonesia has had to find different markets and it's probably put a downward pressure on um, grape prices. There's been a large fire at a fertiliser warehouse in Western Australia. How bad is the damage? How much fertiliser has been lost? You'll find out soon. We will be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one to get the latest on this monsoon trough. I can tell you folks as we go to air this afternoon, it is flogging down rain in Darwin Town, absolutely pouring outside. And the Darwin Airport, over the last 50 hours or so, has received 268 millimetres. That is wet. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, our text number is 0487 991057. The federal government has announced it will change the way it taxes farmers to pay for biosecurity. The government's been under pressure from farm lobby groups about its plan to introduce a levy that would see the agricultural sector pay about $50 million a year for services like sniffer dogs at airports and x-ray scanning at postal centres. The levy is set to come into effect on July 1. But Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says his government has agreed to tweak the system and farmers will now be taxed according to industry value over a rolling three-year average. Here is the minister making this announcement this morning. In the last budget, the Albanese government introduced Australia's first ever sustainable biosecurity funding model that delivers $1 billion over the next four years in new funding for our essential biosecurity services. This includes government funding of $350 million and $363 million from importers, an increase of hundreds of millions of dollars under the Albanese government, as well as a modest and direct contribution from those who directly benefit from Australia's strong biosecurity system. The biosecurity protection levy will contribute just 6% of the total funding model, or about $50 million a year. The department has undertaken extensive consultation over the back half of last year, including stakeholder meetings, a survey of industry, as well as inviting submissions to be made. We've listened to that feedback, and as a result, today I'm announcing that we're changing the way the biosecurity protection levy is calculated to make it fairer and more transparent. The key feedback from industry on the proposed design included concerns about the equity and fairness of levy rates across different commodities, association and confusion with the existing agricultural levies system, and multiple imposition points for some commodities across the supply chain. Changes to the design of the levy have taken these issues into account. Rates will be set using a common and equitable basis for all industry sector products and goods and will not be set by reference to 2020-21 agricultural levy rates as was originally proposed. In addition, Imposition of the levy will be tailored to individual products and goods to reduce multiple imposition points across a product's supply chain. 
the policy intent, key policy parameters and contribution to Commonwealth funding remain the same as announced in the budget package. So that's the Federal Ag Minister Murray Watt making this announcement this morning at Senate Estimates. Will Evans is the Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association. The NTCA was one of many farm lobby groups which had been very critical of that original biosecurity protection levy. Uh, Will, has the ag sector had a win today? Yeah, no, look, I don't think it's a win. I mean, certainly welcome the Minister listening to the concerns that have been raised by every agricultural body across the country in the last 12 months. But I think really... From my perspective, the policy hasn't been explained or altered enough for us to feel comfortable with it. It still seems to me to be quite undercooked. And I think today's additional information about the changes that have been made haven't addressed the issues that we initially had about in the first place. Right. So, pull me up if I'm wrong here. Under the original proposal, your members, cattle producers, look set to pay 50 cents per beast sold to this new biosecurity levy, what are they likely to pay now? Well, this, I mean, this is the big question. Based on the information we've seen today, there's a number that's been banding around that like $9 million will be collected from the beef industry. But like I said, Matt, I mean, I, I've done agricultural policy for 10 years and if I was advising the government, I would say this is something that is one of the most complex undertakings the Department of Agriculture has ever attempted they're not just talking about implementing or changing one levy stream in one supply chain. They're talking about thousands and thousands of, of different beef producers or different commodities producers across the country mm. with different levy collection mechanisms, with different commodity groups. It's, it's extremely complex what they're hoping to undertake here. And I, I would I would be shocked, shocked if they've got the capability to do it effectively and equitably. This won't be ready to go come July 1. Is that what you're saying? I, I, I can't. I honestly, I mean, they they're obviously very confident that they think they can achieve it, but from my from my read of it, I, I just think it can't be. There's no way that they can do this reasonably. That isn't going to negatively impact some commodities in different supply chains, including the beef industry. And just going back to that example of your members were set to pay fifty cents per beast. It, it sounds like you're not too sure what this change could look like in terms of what people pay in the cattle industry? No. So I've, I've seen some preliminary numbers come out this morning. They're saying something like $9 million will be collected from the beef industry. But then they're saying it'll be split equitably between each producer and the supply chain. And I, I'm not even sure the Department of Agriculture has an accurate number about how many beef producers are out there. So I think that's a really, it's a bold undertaking to even attempt to explain this to someone, let alone implement it as law. Well. As I mentioned in the intro, farm lobby groups have been arcing up about this levy. Can you explain to our audience why can't agriculture chip in around $50 million for better biosecurity? Well, I mean, the critical point here, I think, is that we have well-established levy systems in Australia. And those things include producer oversight of how the money is spent and the money there is one government arm that does receive some funding for some services it provides, which is the Natural Residue Service. But other than that, these are separate bodies that are producer-owned and producer-controlled. So the issue with what's being proposed here today is that this isn't a levy. It's a tax. And it's the Department of Agriculture trying to circumnavigate having to go through consolidated revenue to receive additional funding for services that we desperately need them to be providing. And why can't Ag chip in $50 million? 
I think <clears throat> I think the way that this has been done is probably the major issue, oh. and the fact that at this stage we have no understanding or transparency as to what this money is actually going to be spent on, how it's going to be managed. I don't think asking AG to contribute to biosecurity is unreasonable. The issue, I think, is that through the the way that this decision has been made, the industry united is saying this is not the pathway forward. You're not going to be able to do this fairly, equitably and transparently. Okay. Sounds like a lot more detail is needed for everyone here. Just before I let you go, Will Evans, you're in Tennant Creek this afternoon. How's the uh, the country looking? Well, I, I drove up from Alice Springs this morning and um, certainly you can see some of the, the some of the properties starting to recover from the fires last year. There's certainly been a fair bit of rain most of the way up, but we've still got big pockets of country that hasn't come back yet. And you can see that as you're driving up the highway, there's just big burn scars in a lot of places that I wish there weren't. And we've still got a long way to go to get back to where we were this time last year or June last year. So some welcome rain, but there could always be more. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Not a problem. Thanks, Matt. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmara on the Stewart Highway, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Let's now have a chat to Marcus Ravsman, who is at Mount Ringwood Station this afternoon in the top end. He's a cattle producer. He's a former president of Cattle Council of Australia. And Marcus, our top story today is that the federal government is going to tweak it's biosecurity protection levy. As a cattle producer, I guess, what do you make of all of this? Well, just at face value, the changes seem positive at this stage. Um, but it's early days yet. It's uh, worth noting that the biosecurity budget has been underfunded for probably the last 30 years. It's not kept up with the foreign imports our country brings in. And in that time, we've seen an increase in biosecurity breaches that have had some devastating consequences on some parts of agriculture. Um, Historically, the Ag Peak Industry Councils, and especially the NFF, were lobbying for many years to get a container levy in place to deal with this issue. And needless to say that the port owners had more influence to kill this off in Canberra and did our own farm groups. That's right. From memory, it was uh, under David Littleproud's reign as the Ag Minister when that all fell in a heap. Yeah, yep. yep. Um, certainly when David was Minister, um, there was proposed large increases in the biosecurity budget of over $200 million promised, um, but he became the previous government, of course. Um, we do have... Immediate threats, we've got foot and mouth disease, LSD, African swine fever, horse sickness, all on our near doorstep. And finally, I think both sides of politics have been listening. The original proposal by Murray Watt was to increase biosecurity budget from $550 million to over $800 million. So industry was you know, supportive of that and that there would be a new tax on levy payers to um, raise about $40 million of of that budget. So I think that in itself was a reasonable proposition. There was a lot of industry opposition in being a new tax. Mm. Um, I thought it was reasonable, providing we could get the government to keep its word, to make sure the budget was over $800 million. Because 
farmers are the biggest stakeholders in biosecurity and we can ill afford to see this budget go underfunded for the next 20 years. Um, we certainly don't mind paying our fair share of tax, providing it's spent well. So oversight of this new tax is essential. We've just heard from Will Evans, uh, I think he said something along the lines of it's no one questions the need for better biosecurity and, and that it needs to be funded. It's just the mechanism at the moment is raising concerns. Do you have any thoughts in that space, Marcus? Well, there is a mechanism to some extent already there, and that's the Inspector General of Biosecurity. And they've always provided fearless advice on where the shortfalls are um, in the biosecurity funding, what was needed, where the budget needed to go, you know, it was related to all sorts of issues. So there is a mechanism for oversight already there. But the government had to make sure um, if it was going to get industry support, industry needs to have a seat at the table. And it appears that um, finally the minister may be listening on that point. Uh, his new proposal seems somewhat different. And I don't actually know what the total budget is going to be. He's talking about general taxation of around 44% of the contribution, importers paying 48%, producers 6%, and Australia Post 2%. Yeah. So that doesn't sound too bad from an ag sector point of view, but we do have to remember that anything that is in the public interest is meant to be covered by general taxation. Um, and, um, yeah, and in terms of those percentages that you've listed, and, and that's what I've got as well, Marcus, and apparently the beef industry ends up paying around $9 million a year, something yeah. like that. Mm. I think that's a reasonable proposition, providing the rest of the budget is increased to what was promised, and that was over $800 million, You know, And our peak industry councils need to try and keep the pressure on the minister to see that we do get a decent budget. The critical thing, Matt, we need a biosecurity budget that meets our needs for the next 20 years and the current $500 million isn't going to cut it. We need to be up around the $800, $900 million at least just to keep up with rising imports. We need to sort of spend more because we've got a number of threats on our doorstep. Just before I let you go, Marcus, how's the weather at your place this afternoon at Mount Ringwood? I assume it's a bit wet. Yeah, just a miserable monsoon, Matt. <laughs> the place is flooded and um sun hasn't come out. We've been flooded for probably three weeks um, and looks like going back into flood again after uh. a week of sunshine. So, yeah, it's a big wet for up here. So you've sort of got, what, the Margaret River and the Adelaide River nearby? Yeah. Mm. the Margaret River's on the back door, yeah. Right. How's the Margaret looking this afternoon? Oh, it's rising again. <laughs> But do you see it as a positive for your land, though? No, nah, dry year's a good year in this country because we just get too much rain, Matt, and they're solidic clay soils, so they just flood too easily. Last year was probably ideal, but it's more about the start and the finish, you know. If we get an early start and a late finish, that's excellent. But these large days of monsoonal weather and flooding don't do the cattle any favours here. Mm. Yeah. Well, wishing you some blue skies then, Marcus. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Cheers, Matt. All the best, mate. Cheers. Marcus Rassman, he's at Mount Ringwood Station, a very wet Mount Ringwood Station this afternoon in the top end. It's a quarter to one. Hi, I'm Tim Burrow, and I represent the sand, rock and gravel extractors of the Northern Territory, and you're listening to The Country Hour.
And yes, there is a flood watch warning in place this afternoon for western top end rivers. The Bureau says the monsoon trough is strengthening across the top end, causing rain showers and thunderstorms to increase. And a tropical low is forming within the trough and will move eastwards towards the Gulf of Carpentaria midweek. Daily rainfall totals of 40 to 80 millimetres over the flood watch area are expected. With the highest falls likely about the western and northwestern coasts, where falls of over 120 millimetres are possible. I mentioned at the top of the show the Darwin Airport's had 268 millimetres in the last 50 hours or so. That's wet. We will be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one. If you've got a question you want to put to the Bureau, send it through on our text 0487 991057. There's been a large fire at a fertiliser warehouse to the south of Perth. How bad is the damage? We'll find out after this tune by Luke Combs. She woke up fighting mad That is Luke Combs, When It Rains It Pours. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. We've been talking about the federal government's announcement that it will tweak this biosecurity production levy. The National Farmers Federation has just put out a statement to the media. I'll share some of it with you now. It says the National Farmers Federation acknowledges comments made by Ag Minister Murray Watt in his opening address to Senate estimates on the biosecurity protection levy. However, in the absence of further detail, producers continue to remain opposed to this policy. NFF President David Jahinke says the agricultural sector, along with supply chain participants, have overwhelmingly objected to the levy, identifying numerous issues with the policy construct and execution pathway. We acknowledge today's comments by the Minister. However, we still await significant further information concerning the levy's design and what it will practically look like for producers on the ground. That's a statement out this afternoon from the National Farmers Federation. New from ABC Books, one of Australia's most experienced court reporters, Jamel Wells, goes on a regional road trip inside country courtrooms in her new book, The Outback Court Reporter. What goes on in a local courtroom can tell you a lot about the life and fiefdoms of a town. A sometimes funny, sometimes tragic look at courtrooms dotted across Australia. The Outback Court Reporter by Jamel Wells. Book and audiobook available in bookshops and online. Nutrient Ag Solutions says it's still assessing the damage caused by a significant fire in its fertiliser warehouse at Quinana in Western Australia. Andrew Dupa-Uzel is the WA manager for Nutrient and says early signs suggest that not that much fertiliser has been lost. Uh, so the smoke and the flames that you saw in the footage captured uh, by the media you know, indicated that the damage would be really significant. Um, most of the black smoke you could see was, you know, the conveyor and the rubber associated to the matting, etc. I mean, liken it to uh, like tyres burning sort of thing. So it really looked bad. And when we gained access to the site with DFES and FPA on uh, Fremantle Ports on Saturday, you know, the damage is really contained to the shed to the northern roof area. Unfortunately, the gantry 
conveyor which comes into our shed and also the the tower interchange which i think was always also on the footage they're damaged beyond repair so because of this damage particularly to the uh, the tower and the gantry uh, we're unable to access the site with machinery preventing normal operations at the moment so if we just look at the immediate side of things how much fertilizer was actually damaged or ruined in the fire uh, our initial observations, basically the bulk of the stored product looks fine. It was around about 70% to capacity. Um, half of that was around was phosphates and, and there was about a quarter of the product was potash. There is some water and some debris on top of the stacks. It doesn't look uh, to be significant, but at the same time, Richard, we're observing from a distance. So today we're having drones taking some aerial footage for us and hopefully give us some um, perspective on it uh, to see the level of damage. But for the most part, the product uh, doesn't appear to be um, badly affected. The volume should be closely fine. Because I suppose one of the concerns was the water that was being sprayed onto the fire by the firefighters. That could actually damage some of the fertiliser, couldn't it? Because, I mean, it's water-soluble, and once water gets on it, it breaks down, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, uh, and that's what we need to assess. And, and in any case, that we'll have strict QC controls uh, in place to ensure the integrity of the product. But as I said, because uh, it's only the northern, the far northern part of the shed which has been affected, the top of the stacks uh, per se. So, like I said, the damage doesn't seem to be uh, too widespread across the bulk of that fertiliser. Just out of interest, have you figured out whether it was salt water or normal drinking water that was getting poured on that fire? No, Richard, we don't know. We've asked uh, FBA to confirm that and we're still waiting for a response. Because that may have an impact on whether there's much damage to that fertiliser, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, we believe it's, it's fresh water, uh, but again, we need, we need confirmation of that. You mentioned the shed itself. Is, is that uh, going to be okay to actually store fertiliser in in the future? The, the damage there, is it, is it minimal? Uh, well, like I said, it's in the northern part of the shed, so you know we're a little bit fortunate at the moment, given its uh, bright, sunny conditions. Uh, there's no, um, you know, rain or anything, but it will definitely need to be. We'll definitely need to get, you know, cover on that shed to prevent weather uh, on that. Uh, but long term, it need to be fixed, 100%. Um, but for now, our priority will be getting some type of tarpaulin or something like that up. But we can't do that until uh, Fremantle Ports and their engineers have assessed, you know, the damage properly. At the start, you mentioned the damage to the port infrastructure at that Quinana bulk jetty. How bad is it? Because that's going to impact your ability to bring in fertiliser in the future, isn't it, from future shipments? Yeah, so the conveyor system is key here and and that's what's been damaged, Richard. And um, the conveyor system enables us to maximise our storage efficiency at that site uh, because it obviously brings it in from the top and, and drops it down. Uh, that is critical. And, um, you know, we're, we're working with Fremantle Ports at the moment. That's all their infrastructure. And we're working with Fremantle Ports uh, on how we can sort of get that reconstructed um, as soon as possible. Our first steps here, though, we need to obviously um, demolish what we've got there so we can actually get into the site and start moving around it. Any idea how the fire actually started? Uh, look, the investigation by DFES is still ongoing and the, the, the ignition point has not been confirmed. We went to a briefing on Saturday and um, we discovered most sites have CCTV 
which will certainly assist DFIS uh, with their inquiries, uh, that's for sure. But we believe that the fire transferred to our site via the conveyor belt system, um, but this will need to be investigators. So what impact is all of this going to have on the availability of fertiliser for this seeding and then for longer term? Uh, so, we, like I said, it was about 70% to uh, capacity there uh, in Quinana. We've got other depots, uh, storage facilities, Richard, one in Geraldton, one in Albany, one in Esperance and one in Henderson. Uh, so, you know, the, the only immediate impact will be uh, bringing product into our Quinana site. That won't be via conveyor. That'll probably have to be by truck. We're also working with industry uh, at the moment for our immediate requirements just to get some assistance and what have you uh, and business continuity sort of actions in place to uh, to help us through that. So the longer term, we need to get this uh, the conveyor up and up and running again, uh, and that'll that'll certainly uh, secure uh, that going forward. That is Andrew Dupa-Uzel, who is the WA Manager for Nutrient Ag Solutions, speaking a short time ago to Richard Hudson to provide that update on this fire that's gone through its Quinana fertiliser shed just south of Perth. He says at this stage they have no plans to change any shipping arrangements due to the damage caused by this fire. G'day, my name is Floyd. I work in the Spanish mackerel fishery and in the Gulf of Carpentaria. I love what I do and love my job and you're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. I can tell you it's not just cattle producers who are waiting for Indonesia to release import permits for 2024. Those in the business of sending table grapes to Indonesia are also waiting. Fruit that might otherwise have been sent to Indonesia has had to find different markets and it's probably put a downward pressure on um, grape prices. And what sort of demand is there for a cattle station with no cattle but plenty of carbon credit potential? We'll talk more about the potential future for Maryfield and Limbunya stations in the Territory very soon. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Juliet Barson is there this afternoon. And Juliet, in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, some decent rainfall totals again. Yes, there sure has been. We've seen 110.4 at Leanya, 110 at East Arm, 104.4 at Darwin Hospital, 102.2 at Humpty Doo and 101 at Thorax Cemetery, 100.5 at Marara, and quite a few other high totals in that 50 to 100 millimetre uh, range over the northwest part of the daily today as they had an area of convergence in that monsoon conditions. So it's been ripe for this, this heavy rain. This monsoonal burst, sort of where is it at the moment? What's it up to? So this uh, trough has come up from the south and the monsoon has developed in situ. So those monsoonal winds are strengthening over the coastal waters. We've got some strong winds current over some of the northern coastal waters today and they're expected to strengthen and develop a bit further over the coming days and that monsoon trough is deepening with a low that's forming within that trough. So it's that 
uh, sort of broad, diffuse circulation at the move, m- moment. As that moves east, it may develop, and we um, are likely to have a low in the Gulf of Carpentaria in a few days, uh, which could then d- has a moderate or around a 30% chance of developing into a tropical cyclone Ooh. heading into Friday. Okay. Okay, and so between now and then, what sort of rainfall totals could parts of the top end receive? So it's uh, likely to remain with those higher rainfall over the um, northwest for for today. Um, So far we've seen 45.4 at Dumin Mary. As we um, head into the uh, next few days, that uh, focus will... Uh, gradually shift. So um, tomorrow, again, we're expecting over the northwest top end 40 to 60 millimetres with isolated falls of up to 90 millimetres. And then as we head into Thursday and Friday, um, that rainfall is likely to concentrate to the um, eastern side of that uh, low system, um, which could be in the order of 100 to 140 millimetres. Okay, we've got a text here from Dave in Palmerston. According to his gauge, 109 in the gauge since midnight. It's decent. Ooh, yeah. That's decent. Um, 30% chance of a tropical cyclone. We're getting texts from people living in uh, central parts of the Northern Territory, desperate for some moisture. What can you tell them? Um, so I can tell that, I guess, regardless of whether the, the system does develop into a tropical cyclone, it is likely to bring some rain and some windy conditions with it. And as it as we head into the weekend, it will it seems likely that it may cross over the Gulf Coast and across back across central districts, heading towards the WA border, possibly early next week. Um, but I guess with all of that heavy rain is is a uh, potential bad news for the um, for flooding. So we could see more potential for already saturated ground to be uh, the mm. subject of more flood watches and warnings. So currently we already have a flood watch current for the western top end rivers with this heavy rain that we've been experiencing over the last few days and the next few days. Just back to the question though, you're willing to say mm. how how far south the moisture could go? Ah, uh, yes. So um, the moisture, exactly how far south? I'd say probably into the uh, Barclay region. So depending on the movement. Um, hmm. I mean, I get it. With these tropical lows, there's a lot of variables in it, I understand. But I think, like, um, probably most likely staying clear of the southern districts, but but covering the central districts, I would say. Okay. Uh, We've got a question here from Jeff, but it is, it's a great question, but it's it's long, it's quite detailed. So, Jeff, if you're listening, what I'm going to do is I'm going to copy and paste this question, send it to the Bureau and get you a good answer on tomorrow's Country Hour rather than spring it on Juliet straight away. Um, But, Juliet, I understand you've got for us the wet season thus far for Darwin Airport versus the average. What can you tell us? Yes, I can tell you it's really jumped up over the last few days with the rain at airport. So on the 10th of February, it was sitting below average at 856 millimetres to date on the 10th of Feb. And as at the 12th of February, it was sitting at 
now 163 millimetres, sorry, 1,063 millimetres, which is 101% of the long-term average to date or just a bit above average and and that will be climbing. So, um, So, yes, we've gone from significantly below average to average and above average. We, we, Darwin has that above average feel uh, on a Tuesday lunchtime. I like it. Thanks for your time, Juliet. Yes, it might be the first time we've been above average so far this Since October season. 1. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It's got that feeling about it. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. <laughs> That's Juliet Barson there at the Weather Bureau just repeating the flood watch in place for western top end rivers. Catchments likely to be affected include the Mary the Upper Adelaide River, the Finnis, the Lower Daly River, Catherine River, Moyle River, South Alligator River, Wildman, East Alligator and Waterhouse River. Juliet mentioned some of the big rainfall totals around Darwin, but further south, some good rain in cattle country. Uh, I see Tortilla Flats has recorded 59 millimetres. Banbans had 13. Tipperary's recorded 47. Elizabeth Downs cattle stations had 30. And Bullo River cattle station out near the WA border, it's had 41 millimetres. G'day, this is Chris Nathaniel at Tropiculture Australia Bees Creek, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Darwin is above average. For the first time this wet season. That's interesting weather news right there. Now, it's not just the live export industry that is waiting for Indonesia to issue import permits for 2024. Table grape exports to Indonesia are also in limbo as growers wait to get their permits. Indonesia... It was the second largest customer of Australian table grapes last year, buying 17% of the Aussie crop. Big customer. Victorian table grape grower Don Albanese says exporters are now searching for new markets for grapes at the moment as they wait for these Indonesian permits to be granted. It puts pressure on other markets. Fruit has to go to other export markets or uh, here domestically in Australia. So fruit that might otherwise have been sent to Indonesia has had to find different markets and it's probably put a downward pressure on um, grape prices at the moment. Are there particular grape varieties that are popular in Indonesia? Uh, Red Globe predominantly, but it does put pressure on even Thompson Seedless. Um, there's still Thompson Seedless around that might have been exported to Indonesia as well. There's a lot of white grape varieties like Sweet Globe and Autumn Crisp, but they're not quite red yet, so... If fruit can get over there soon, it's not too late. How are grape prices at the moment? Are they are they holding up okay, or or are they, yeah? What what are they like at the moment? Grape prices seem to be okay. Um, definitely lighter crop this year as compared to last year. So we're hoping prices will hold. There's no need to panic at this stage. If, if we've got a lighter crop, lighter volumes to be exported, as well as domestic uh, domestic consumption. So. Yeah, I just hope the prices hold and um, everyone can get their grapes off. As table grape producer Don Albanese speaking to Elsie Kennedy. And, of course, the likelihood of Indonesia issuing import permits this week are extremely slim. I think it's fair to say Indonesians head to the polls tomorrow for the presidential election. When we had a chat to Troy Setter from CPC on Friday's Country Hour, 
He was hopeful that this situation could get resolved soon, but did say the election was making it complicated. It's a very busy week in Indonesia this week is the uh, presidential election. There's a lot of campaigning been going on in the last couple of weeks. Um, and that has meant that ministers and senior staff are, are out in the field and out in the cities campaigning pretty hard. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, to be honest, we're, we're unsure on, on why the permits weren't released at the start of this year like, uh, what, like normally happens. So here we are in the middle of February and not a single animal has been exported to Indonesia so far this year. How damaging has this been for the northern cattle industry? Look, I, I think for the northern cattle industry, we've been very lucky that there's been reasonably good rain in Queensland and the Northern Territory. There's quite a few cattle, though, that are starting to build up around Darwin um, that are in yards or, or on, uh, on properties that, that need to go, um, particularly to allow feed to regrow for calves that will be weaned in, in first round. Um, from an Indonesian side, and particularly for our business in Indonesia, We've got Ramadan starting in a couple of weeks. Um, that's our really big uh, beef sale time. Uh, and we had planned to, to take cattle and so had many other importers in January uh, to be ready to be able to supply that increased demand from Indonesian consumers during Ramadan. And that's starting to get, get concerning now. That is Troy Setter from the Consolidated Pastoral Company, which runs cattle stations across the north. It's also got some feedlots in Indonesia. If you missed our conversation with Troy on Friday, that interview is up on our website if you search for NT Country Hour. And unfortunately, from for industry, they're still waiting. The permits have not been issued. It's the middle of February. The Indonesian election's on tomorrow. It is a challenging time. Speaking of time, it's 17 past one. Now, it used to be that cattle stations were put up for sale, offering people a chance to buy a cattle station and run some cattle. That's what it was about. But now two territory stations are being offered for sale on their potential to produce carbon credits. Is this the future for northern properties? We'll talk more about this after a classic. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. On yesterday's program, we heard that two NT cattle stations have been put up for sale purely for their carbon potential. Maryfield and Limbunya stations have long-term leases with AAM Investment to run the cattle, but the current owner, Sam Mitchell, has offered the land for sale with the potential to produce 10 million-plus carbon credits. The land and carbon credits are being marketed for well over $100 million. The carbon credit methodology attached to these properties is for what's called human-induced regeneration, where the landholder actively makes vegetation on the property regrow and store more carbon. Sustainability and carbon farming expert Dr Richard Eckhart from Melbourne University says this methodology could impact the resale value of the stations. I think where we need to go with this is, is understand the encumbrance on the land and how it might affect land values in future. If you are in some of what we call the emissions avoidance methods, which is savannah burning or herd methodology, 
you're basically just reducing the methane that would have come from the burning of the grass in the middle of summer versus in spring. So you could do that next year and next year and next year and have no residual encumbrance between events. Same with herd methodology. You finish the animals earlier this year, send them off to market three months earlier, that's three months of methane that didn't produce. You can do that again next year and the year after. So it has no encumbrance on the land value. Uh, whereas if it's a human-induced regeneration of soil carbon, the carbon is sitting in the land. And the fact that the carbon is there means that whoever owns the property takes the short-term income but is left with the liability of maintaining the carbon in the land for the next 25 years. So it will have an effect on land values second time around because you, you've taken your cash up front. So as long as people understand that there's this residual obligation and that it is there's already reports that those types of projects will have a negative effect on the resale of the land uh, or the value of the land because you've pretty much taken your profits. And the, the fact that the carbon has been sold but still is sitting in the landscape prevents you from doubling it again because that's the law of saturation. You can't double it because carbon's already been doubled. And this methodology is across a long time, 25 years. So that, that's the point. So if, if, there's, if that vegetation is there, there's a carbon maintenance obligation associated with the method that says whoever owns the property has the encumbrance and has to guarantee that that carbon asset is maintained, even if it has a fire or a natural disaster. Some other third party now or mining company now owns that carbon in that vegetation. So the carbon maintenance obligation has to be there to make sure there have been criticisms raised about the human-induced regeneration methodology, uh, saying that they don't actually reduce much carbon. Uh, do you think buyers can have confidence in these carbon credits? So it, that, that's a tricky area because the, the method itself is, is okay generally uh, if it's used in the right way. Um, but we have to ask ourselves the question, why are we doing this in the first place? We're only doing it because the atmosphere has to see a material difference. If the atmosphere is not seeing a difference, then it undermines the entire purpose of what we're doing. And unfortunately, there have been a number of cases in Australia where um, personalities like Andrew McIntosh has sort of raised the alarm that actually the project is rolling ahead. We're issuing official carbon credits. Someone's able to buy them to get there, buy their way out of there emissions liability, but the atmosphere is not benefiting because, well, the carbon just simply isn't there um, or not in the way that the method is claiming. And and that would be of grave concern, you know, for, from the point of view of the method and the integrity of the method and sign off by the clean energy regulator, that might all be above board. But, you know, as, as someone who has a, had a hand in writing six of these methods, you really would want the confidence that the atmosphere is actually making a difference because it'll come out at some stage whether it did or didn't benefit the atmosphere. Do you think human reduced regeneration can work well in northern Australia? Look, in the rangelands generally, yes, it can. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 the only problem we do have in a lot of the rangelands is they are thickening regardless. So, you know, the, the, uh, the, there's, there's reasons why they might be uh, thickening naturally. Um, one of them is actually our own carbon dioxide emissions feeding um, enhanced vegetation growth. 
So you increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is part of what's causing the change in the first place. Um, the bush will grow at the expense of the grass. That That's a natural cycle uh, or a natural response. Uh, but it shouldn't be the, pollution, the solution to our pollution, if you know what I mean. So human-induced regen has to be a method that only credits what you as a land manager did to enhance that above what's naturally occurring in the background. So that's why fencing the goats out is, is, is a, a possible solution, because if the goats are reducing the rate of growth of the vegetation, well, fencing them out will, will help. Do you think we'll see more northern Australian cattle properties marketed expressly for their carbon potential? Part of the conversation is, you know, the big end of town, the big miners, the big emitters, they're under a fair bit of pressure to reduce their emissions in line with the government's safeguard mechanism. So the safeguard mechanism has now got a declining baseline of about 6% per year, which, which will generate the demand for a massive amount of carbon credits, more than can be generated really. We've got to remember what the original intention is. The intention of that declining baseline is to make it harder and harder to just buy your way out of trouble. So the intention is not to oversupply carbon credits so that the, the progress towards net zero for the big end of town is just buying your way out of trouble. That's not the intention. So when we did the Net Zero Australia plan, which is a plan that we did through University of Melbourne and University of Queensland, we worked out that actually the land sector as a whole are going to struggle to get to their net zero target in their own right. So this idea that there's all these surplus carbon credits uh, is probably not right. It's probably not true. And you could argue that what should happen here is the company itself should be net zero before they sell carbon credits. In other words, what is their plan to get their property to net zero emissions by 2030 or by 2050? And then that changes the conversation from selling offsets to actually insetting. And if you start looking at where agriculture is shifting, it's shifting from an offset mindset to an inset mindset because selling your product as meeting supply chain demand and the targets for the supply chain is actually more important than short-term gains through carbon credits. That's Richard Eckhart, who is a Professor of Sustainable Agriculture at the University of Melbourne, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. And if you missed our coverage yesterday of Merrifield and Limbunya being put back on the market 16 months after they were sold, you can be able to find that on our podcast. It's time now to head to the sale yards. Of all the latest prices out of Roma, here's David Friend. Roma agents yarded 5,420 head. Cattle were drawn from the large supply area, including Longreach, Quilpe, Wyandra, Cullamull and the local district. All the regular processes, feedlots and background is operating. The market softened on most descriptions on last week's sale. At the time of this interim report, yielding steers 200 to 280 kilos, returning to the paddock, topped at 524. Yielding steers 280 to 330 kilos, average 426 and made to 516. Yielding steers 330 to 400 kilos to feed, made to 380 cents per kilo. Yielding steers 400 to 480 kilos, also to feed, made to 378. Yielding steers over 480 kilos, topped at 374 cents a kilo. Growing steers 400 to 500 kilos, average 310, topping at 338. Growing steers 500 to 600 kilos, Topped at 297 with over 600 kilos, selling to 289 cents a kilo. The best of the heavyweight bulls to do 290 cents a kilo. 
This has been David Friend from the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, David. Keep it rural. <laughs>